You're listening to the Sports Therapy Association podcast. Let's talk about. Okay, 17th of August, 2021, 8 o'clock on a Tuesday night. So that can only mean one thing. It is the Sports Therapy Association podcast. Uh, welcome. How are you doing? My name is Matt Phillips, creative runch at live. And I've got my feet firmly back in the United Kingdom as we speak. Thanks to everyone who joined uh, us last week when I was in Menorca on holiday. And um, you'll notice the cam this week is just as bad because for some reason my own cams have packed up. So I apologize for this kind of subdued Bella Lugosi type look for tonight. But um I don't know. Can't be helped. Um, if you are joining us on the podcast, then fantastic. Thank you very much. Um, you are, of course, obviously welcome to join us live by coming to the Facebook page at Sports Therapy Association uh, on eight o'clock on a Tuesday night. Um, and that way you can uh, ask the question questions to the guests yourself and you can network with the other therapists in here. And you can also join us if you're not a Facebook fan, then you can join us on YouTube as well with a direct stream and you can ask questions there as well and leave comments. So people already joining us live tonight are coming in. For example, Catherine Reimer is here. Hi, Catherine. How are you doing? You're right. Um, and um, when people do come in and ask a question, I can bring their name up on the screen and it kind of shows um, your logo if you want. So it's good networking as well. It makes business sense, common sense and educational sense. So there you go. Brian, how are you doing? Brian Huckley in the house as well. Good to see you, Brian. Right. So, um, yes, before we um, crack on with tonight's show, which I've been looking forward to um, a great deal since the guest confirmed that he could come along, um, I just must make sure that I have a big thanks to Dr. Amy M. Bender from last week. Um, Amy is the Director of Clinical Sleep Science at Cerebra Health. Uh, that's cerebra.health, www.cerebra.health, uh, uh, www um, who gave us a fantastic hour last week. If you haven't seen it yet or watched it, then do go to um the sta.co.uk it's all uploaded to there now or you can obviously listen to the audio on your favorite podcast app that's all done as well um it was an it was an amazing hour we could have gone on we were going to do a part two at some point um it was all about sleep and the effect that sleep can have on recovery and performance um a lot of us are aware that sleep's a big factor and slowly we are paying more um, attention to it when we see a client but being able to understand the different stages of sleep um, allows us to ask much more uh, useful questions to our clients um, and also a few therapists said to apply it to ourselves because we all know what it's like how useless we are as a therapist if we're tired and shattered the next day it does happen um, so um, it was a great hour and um, a massive thanks to uh, Dr Amy Bender for joining us um, uh, it was great um, if you have any questions for Amy based on that, uh, there's an awful lot of information provided. Then uh, Amy is on social media um, at sleep for sport Four is the number. So it's at sleep for sport. Um, and I had a few people asking about the athlete screening questionnaire that Amy mentioned. Um, you can find that at centerforsleep.com. That's center, F-O-R, sleep dot com and there you'll find the link to the athlete screening questionnaire which is great it's something which so far a few therapists have told me uh, they're just lapping it up and and adding it when they're um, seeing a therapist when they're seeing an athlete who they suspect might have some kind of sleeping disorder um, is not reaching their full potential so that's all there it's all on the show notes uh, find it at the sta.co.uk or check it out on youtube it's all on there right then done tonight um, I'm delighted, created quite a buzz when I announced that Dr. Gary Mendoza was going to be 
um, with us tonight. He seems to have motivated you already, which is ironic, given that the title is going to be motivational interviewing. But yeah, definitely got a great name. Um, some of you have already done his courses. He's the founder and director of Stages of Change. And you can find his website, stagesofchange.co.uk. Um, we're going to be talking about motivational interviewing, which is a big buzzword. I think a lot of people have seen it, heard about it. Um, as always, there's probably some misinterpretation, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Um, but essentially, as far as I know, it's an evidence-based approach to aiding behavior change in our clients and patients. And you can adapt that to anybody who's got to change something in their life. Obviously, we're looking at it from a, a healthcare perspective. Um, so it's going to be a fascinating hour. As always, if you've got any questions, and feel free to throw them into the comments at the side. I've given um, Gary, as always, permission to cut me short and just say, Matt, love you bits. But there's a great question here from Sarah Jones. Can you shut up for a second? Let me answer it. I've given him permission. It needs to happen because um, I do forget sometimes about you guys asking questions. So uh, without further ado, I will bring up Dr. Gary Mendoza. Hey, Gary, how are you doing? Hi, Matt. Good, thanks. Thanks nice for joining us. Be on here, finally. <laughs> He's saying finally, as in when we first started talking or finally... As in a week or two, I have to oh, do that a day. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry, I'll do give a little bit of a long intro. No, thanks very much for joining us. Where are you talking from, by the way? I'm based in South Wales. South Wales, very nice. Um, because you, it's not. <laughs> um, because you are, let me, you lecture, don't you, at Cardiff Metropolitan? Is that right? University? And yeah. at Bath Spa as well. And at Bath Spa, Bath Spa. The accent came out then when you said Bath. Um, and that's in nutrition. <laughs> um, you've got a PhD in nutrition. We could have done the whole topic tonight on nutrition, but we're focusing particularly on uh, motivational interviewing. Um, so, yeah, let's get straight into it, I think. Um, have Motivational inter interviewing is quite a buzz thing at the moment. Um, it's It's being put around quite a lot on social media. Maybe give us a little definition according to you, because you've studied under the best of what it is, um, and let us know why it's become so relevant in the last few years. Um, the, the simplest and kind of best way to describe it is it's a client-centered um, conversation that allows an individual to find their own reasons for wanting to change. And it came about from addictive behaviors in um, alcohol abuse, smoking, things like that. And they found that just giving people information or whatever was kind of futile. It kind of went in one ear and out the other. And so this is more client centered and based around a lot of the work of Carl Rogers and Rogerian theory. So client centered therapy and that type of thing. So it's not a technique. It's not something you do to someone. Um, I talk quite a lot on the workshop about being MI. It is a way of being. And I always say to any of the students on the workshop that if you can bring this into your personal life as much as your work life, you'll be better for it because it, it's a better way of communicating, um, certainly a better way of listening, improving your listening skills. I think all of us as professionals, therapists, whatever kind of background we're in, would like to think we're good listeners. And I certainly used to think I was, having been a personal trainer for 28 years. I'm, I must have caught on to something. But I think when I learned motivational interviewing, it made me realize that actually I could really hone my listening skills. And and so that if, if there was one thing I, I kind of took away from learning motivational interviewing, it was be a better listener. 
and don't talk as much. Yes, it's, it's fantastic, and it fits really nicely into practically every episode we've done so far because of this. This this podcast came out of COVID when therapists were finally getting together to chat about issues they had and to listen to each other as opposed to competing with each other. We've said a few times now, it's one of the kind of the, the benefits of COVID, which sounds like a total oxymoron, but it has brought therapists together. It's brought disciplines together. It's kind of broken down walls and it is all based around listening and chatting to each other and looking for advice. And, and I think with that now, we're realizing that just the same as we benefit from listening to each other, our patients and clients could probably benefit if we listen to them a little bit more. It's a common theme. So it fits in very nicely. I'm wondering whether, I mean, it fits in nicely as well because the, the modern therapist, particularly soft tissue therapists with a history of manual therapy techniques and mechanisms of action, which slowly but surely science is kind of showing probably aren't happening, like increasing blood circulation through massage or breaking down uh, knots in tissue, all these sort of things. We're kind of realizing now we're moving away from that operator model of us doing things to people and rather becoming a facilitator uh, where we're kind of helping people and standing next to them instead of doing things on top of them. Is it any coincidence, do you think, that this is happening in soft tissue therapy and the teachings of motivational interviewing are ga gathering weight as well? Because it's all kind of, it seems to me, about the same thing, work with the person instead of on them. I think that's the key thing. It's that with, it's this equal relationship. I think sometimes the way we train, whether it be trainers, therapists, whatever, we kind of put them through a syllabus and we say at the end of that syllabus, you'll be the expert. So you're here and your client's here. And so there's a temptation to almost talk down in terms of, look, I know what I'm talking about. Just listen to me and I can kind of sort you out. And what we realize is that's just not effective people will nod and say yes and give you all the right facial signals. But in terms of are they processing that at a deeper level, subconscious, unconscious, pretty much not. It's most probably going in one ear and out the other. And then sometimes I think trainers, therapists, physiotherapists, they wonder why, well, I do this treatment with a client and I give them these exercises to go away and do. And they come back a week later and they clearly haven't done it because you know whether somebody's, following up on any kind of post-treatment and and then you're kind of a bit baffled it's like well why wouldn't you do that and basically it's because they didn't feel engaged enough in the process and yes it's treatment to a client but actually it should be kind of treatment with a client and they should feel that they're an equal partner within that that relationship I wonder sometimes based on what you're saying and other kind of movements as we move kind of into this firmly into this century, whether the word treatment itself is becoming a little bit kind of old hat now. Because as soon as you say the word treatment, it applies you're going to lie down and have something yeah. done to you. Yeah. But I can't find a better word at the moment, so I still kind of well, use I, it. But... I think we saw it. We saw the kind of um, genesis of this. If you look at um, cognitive behavioral therapy, Cognitive behavioral therapy, when it first came about, and there's a real um, interlink between MI and CBT, when that was first introduced, they moved away from calling people patients. They mm. stopped calling people. They, they do not refer to people that are in CBT as patients. They're always clients. And so that was a big step forward in terms of psychology whereas they, people had always been, you know, in mental health issues or whatever, had always up to that point been considered patients, but now they're considered clients. So it's a similar type of shift, actually. That's very interesting. 
And when would that have been, like, year-wise? I'm just trying to link that CBT to... CBT came about in the 60s, I think, with uh, Beck, Aaron Beck, and his wife. Okay. They kind of were the first kind of proponents of it. Okay, so even then they were questioning kind of the words they were using and the effect that could have on their... La language is just so powerful. And, and once you start to realise that, things you say as a therapist can have a profound impact on your client and yet you don't see them as having any kind of i mean the classic one that i always talk about is telling people to try something because by doing that you're actually giving them permission to fail you're saying go away and try but if it doesn't work it doesn't matter so the word try in itself is implicitly linked with you don't really have to do it and yet that's such a little word but it's it carries a hell of a lot of connotations that's really good i think it's a really good intro as well the words that, that if once a therapist starts looking at the words they're using and this links this as well as the images they've got on their screens or the you know the photos they got up on the board and the spine with the red dot on it and everything once people once therapists themselves start analyzing their vocabulary and that then they start analyzing everything and they start analyzing what they're doing with their hands and they start you know criticizing everything and it's a really it's a great journey um we had um mike stewart of no pain uk who was my entry point back in about 2005 or something with a workshop he did it was all about the power of communication and the words we use and all the negative connotations and catastrophizing and i remember i had him down to present at my clinic and uh, the morning when i was setting up i had one last look around my my own clinic space and it's like take that poster down get rid of that <laughs> knee with a meniscus hanging out i had these cups with athlete in rehab which been printed out so you could have a cup of coffee with athlete in rehab and i thought that's really negative you're reminding the athlete they're in rehab chuck all the cups out and kind of whitewash the place but it's it's i think it's a great door it's a great opening point for therapists to do it's another area that we're becoming more aware of is is self-awareness you know, in counsellors, it's built into the way we train counsellors, the way they, they work. Self-awareness is huge and having supervision and looking at their own practice quite critically. And I think we'd all benefit from becoming more critical of our own practice. And I certainly said when I did the workshop for therapists for Mike Grice and, and so on, I said to them, video the odd consultation that you do and watch it back because you'll be your own worst critic. You will pick things up that maybe somebody who was unbiased would go, no, that's fine. Don't worry about that. You will be your most stringent critic. And, and you do learn a lot by watching yourself. Definitely. Reflection. Fantastic. OK, so let's get into the crutch of the matter, as it were. Um, I mean, your website, Stages of Change. You must have like thought, thank you, when you found out that was available. That was a good <laughs> website. <laughs> that's great. Oh, you're very excited. Because that's kind of the crutch of everything, isn't it? That goes back to the, the, the model in the 70s. Tell us a little bit about Stages of Change, why you chose that name. What is it? It's based on the Stages of Change model by Prochatska and D. Clementi. And it was kind of my entry point into MI, actually, because my doctoral research uh, I trained personal trainers to deliver a weight management system. And the reason I got into um, psychology and more the behavior change side of it was we use psychometric testing in the research. So anybody that came to a personal trainer, they complete the psychometric tests and that would tell us where they are on their kind of journey of change, if you want. And what we found was people were taking on personal trainers, even though 
from a psychological assessment perspective, they weren't ready to change, which was an interesting finding in itself because you, you would think you're paying a personal trainer 40, 50 pounds an hour, whatever it might be. And yet psychologically, you're not actually ready to do this. And what I found was when I followed up, because what I did was I got the trainers to deliver the psychometric test first. 12 weeks later, I followed up the clients. I went straight to the client. And some of them by then had dropped out, stopped training, stopped going to the gym, whatever it might be. And what I found was I could look at their scores and I could predict who would drop out. And so what we did in the second phase was I said to trainers, you can only take a client on if they meet this kind of entry criteria, if they're at the right stage of change. And when we did that, we got an 86% success rate. And so then I, that, I lectured in New Zealand for two years at Massey University. And so I repeated the research identically with Maori and South Pacific Islanders we got exactly the same results in terms of success rate. And because of that, the Manawatu region, public health, turned around and said, we want to adopt this as our weight management system. The problem was because it's public health, you couldn't turn people away. So we're doing psychological assessment and we're having to say to some people, you're not ready, you can't enter the program. And so that kind of raised the question, well, how do you help someone that isn't ready psychologically to get to a point where they are, they are. And that's where MI comes into it because motivational interviewing is designed to take somebody that's ambivalent about change. And ambivalence is basically, their pros and cons are pretty similar. And so what, it, what MI does is it helps people shift that in terms of their pros increase, cons decrease. Consequently, they move forward through the various stages of change. And there are four, possibly five, if you take the news. So you go from pre-contemplation, which is you are not thinking about changing, don't want to know. Contemplation, you're weighing it up. So that might be your ambivalent client. Their pros and cons are pretty similar. Preparation is a short stage, about six weeks to 12 weeks, where you are starting to think, I'm going to do something about this. And then you move into action and you take on therapists, you go for treatment, you go and see your doctor, whatever it might be. And then you move through the action stage. Typically, the research says six months, but I prefer to have it more open-ended. I don't think you can put a time scale on, on that. And then hopefully you get to a point where you, you maintain whatever the desired behavior was. And so that's kind of the bigger picture of it as it was. so that's what stages of change actually is and as i say you can use psychometric testing to measure where somebody is on that change journey fantastic so let me correct me if i got it wrong so somebody coming to your clinic maybe they have injured themselves or they're in pain or both and they're looking to you or they've come to you because they're wanting not to be in pain and to be able to run again for example but obviously the people come to the door could be at those different stages. So you mentioned the first stage pre-contemplation, which is basically they've come to you, but either consciously or subconsciously, they're not really prepared to not run or do their exercises or really listen to you. They just want to kind of, they don't even want to be there really, but they just felt they had to. Yeah, I mean, quite possibly they've been sent by someone yeah. else. So a doctor said, oh, you really need to go along or a, a close friend or somebody they train with or whatever. Mm -hmm. And they're more or, more or less just doing it to shut you up. Just, so, well, yeah, I'll, I'll go and do it. And then, you know, you'll get off my back kind of thing. 
So the way you're going to treat that person, well, first you've got to identify them, and then we'll talk you about in a sec how you would and identify that's where them. Motivational interviewing comes into it because if you go through the tech, the um, various phases of motivational interviewing, you'll pick up fairly quickly how ready somebody is to change because one of the skills in motivational interviewing is listen to the language that's being used because there'll be clues within that language. Fantastic. And so this is why you have to listen actively, as it were, because whereas often we'll just take a whole sentence and think, oh, I know what that means. You have to actually listen to the words that are in the sentence and think, oh, they've said that. That's a key word. That's quite important. Brilliant. Okay. Well, look, I'm, I'm, this is fascinating for me. Don't forget, people, don't let me go off on one and just kind of ask, <laughs> carry, you know, just one-to-one, -one, uh, ask some questions if you want. But yeah, so give us an idea, obviously, that would depend on the individual, but what are some of the words or gestures of some form that would show that somebody is has come to you in this pre-contemplation stage, apart from the fact that they tell you that their wife has bought them a voucher because they're always grumbling? <laughs> yeah, that's a big clue. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, you might have, because the first stage of motivational interviewing is what we call engaging. So mm -hmm. it's kind of just getting on board with the client, learning a bit about them, background or whatever. And you might, you'll pick up on some reticence there straight away. Once you feel that you've got good engagement with the client, so you kind of know, and the engaging process from a therapy perspective, you could do your pre-screening with that. I know you said about having a par queue and what have you, you will gain a ton more information than you ever would if you put a form in front of somebody or you sit there with a clipboard going, what's your age? What's mm. your name? What did you do last week? What's your favorite food? How did you injure yourself? If you engage properly, you will get the answer to all those questions. You can fill the form out later. But the difference now is that client doesn't feel interrogated. And in motivational interviewing, where you're doing that, this question, that question, it's called the question and answer trap. And so it doesn't move you any further forward. They feel a bit, well, it's a one-up relationship. I'll ask the questions, you give me the answers. So anyway, you do that engaging process. We now move to focusing. What are we actually going to work on? Why are you here? What do you want to deal with? And what, what, whatever the injury is, they will obviously then tell you about it, the background to it, how they did it, blah, blah. You now start to talk to them and find out what type of treatment they're expecting, what type of outcomes. And this is where the language becomes important because what we're looking for is what we call change talk. And change talk takes the form of I need, I want, I should, I'm going to, that type of thing. So you're listening for that. And there's two different types of change talk. There's what we call preparatory change talk, where people are kind of thinking about it, but they're not quite sure. And then with good listening skills and good reflecting skills, so giving people back the language they're using, that preparatory change talk ultimately will shift into what we call mobilizing change talk, which is they're going to do something about it. They're kind of in a place where they're kind of good to go. And from there, we can then move into planning how the treatment will go. So there's a definite structure to it. And from a therapist's perspective, it's really useful because what you learn is where am I in that process with this client rather than quick hello how's it been how was the weather how was your work this week whatever and then plowing on let's get on with it 
good engagement will tell you, well, is this client in the same place? Have they had problems this week that maybe we need to look at first? And then can we move? And you can move through all these phases very quickly with clients that you've had for a while because you'll just natural engagement. The focus is unlikely to have changed. So you can get through it. So I think sometimes people think motivational interviewing has to be this long-winded 30-minute, one-hour consultation. But actually, you can do a whole MI process in terms of the different phases, five to 10 minutes in some cases. So it's a skill you continually can use and benefit from. And I guess listening to you, obviously, you're not going to get it all overnight, but the better you get at it, the more effectively you do the engaging and then the focusing, then the easier it is to move from one stage to the other because you're getting that engagement. So they're ready to focus more. And if they do focus, then you're going to evoke more of a reaction. They can plan better. So how long does it take? I mean, it's, this is really excellent because we're at a stage now, I think, where therapists are being told you need to listen more. You need to focus on the subjective. The subjective is where you build a hypothesis and then you test the hypothesis with the objective test. Don't jump straight to the objective because everything you find will be the course you did last week and it's just a, a rabbit hole. So, yeah. But that presumes that people have got listening skills and therapists, as far as I know, and all the courses I've seen or heard about or been involved in teaching, and not listening does not form part of the syllabus on a level three or level four or level five um, sports massage therapy. I'm not sure about sports therapy degrees. I'd be interested if anyone in here has done the degree and there was a an element on on the power of listening um, for sports therapy. But this is exactly it. This is what it means. You can't just tell therapists to listen more. It's like you need some skills now. This is what you're doing whilst you're listening. So you've had therapists on courses you've taught, haven't you? Yeah. Has this been like a, a real eye opener? Catherine's done, done the course. So, oh, well, there we go. So, you, you can kind of firsthand, you've got somebody here that actually did did the workshop the first time we ran it for specifically for therapists and looking at the environment in which you're operating. So, fantastic. I, I think what it does allow you to do is it allows you to have structure. And when you've only got an hour's treatment, you want to make sure that, well, you, I need to get through A, B, C, D, but this allows you to do it in a way that the client is involved as well. Mm. Uh, a key skill, which a lot of therapists will have, we were talking about this just before we came on air, was empathy. And having empathy is so important. I've been doing some research lately um, around CBT, actually, and how CBT merges with MI. And empathy is a really big aspect of this. And a lot of the research suggests that a big part of being an empathic coach, trainer, whatever, is actually respecting your client's autonomy. And autonomy is a real buzzword in MI in terms of the client has to make the decisions you can't just impose things on people. You have to give people choice. But by respecting autonomy, what that actually does is it demonstrates empathy because you're coming from a caring place where you want the best for your client and you want the client involved in the whole process. And in turn, that will build an empathic relationship. And if anybody's in any doubt about how important empathy is, Terry Moyers, who's the leading researcher in behavior change and certainly motivational interviewing in addictive behaviors, she has found that the single best predictor of a positive outcome in addictive behaviors is the level of empathy of the counselor. 
it's not the level of experience. It's not the level of qualification. It's how much empathy they actually give off, as it were. So it clearly is absolutely crucial in terms of working with a client. That empathic relationship is it's almost the number one thing you should worry about because if that's not in place, pretty much nothing else is going to follow if the research is to be believed. That's great, yeah. And and the good thing, the good news for, like we were saying off air, most sports therapists and sports massage therapists, they're in the business because they have got that empathy, that kind of altruism of wanting to help others and reduce pain. And, you know, you're not going to get paid much. It's not like a, a job where you're just going to work from eight to no. six and get a fortune, but you're going to get that thank you, which means a lot, you know, and, and therapists take home and want to get up in the morning to do more. And it's a, it's a skill you can develop as well. So not only have people that naturally go into these type of um you know therapy personal training dietetics will generally have a degree of empathy straight off because you don't choose those professions unless you have but what is interesting is you can improve it you mm. can kind of hone it as it were so it's something you can build on it's interesting i noticed Catherine's comment there mm. took her a while to get her head around it but it was really interesting leaving time for people to talk and listen it is it's one of the hardest things to do when you're having a conversation. I always say to people, silence is golden. And what I mean by that is when your client's talking, when they stop talking, like we're having a conversation now, I stop talking, you'll pretty much come back in with, well, I need to say something now. It must be my turn kind of thing. But one of the things you learn in motivational interviewing is when the client stops talking, give them a bit of gap one or two seconds it will feel like a lifetime but what that tends to do is the client thinks oh he's expecting me to say something else and what happens in that scenario is what you often see with a client is they'll start looking up or they'll look left or right and what that really means is they are now trying to access their subconscious because what's happened in that initial flurry of conversation is we've got all the conscious thought out and now if you just keep quiet for a couple of seconds, conscious is gone. So now we've got to access something else. We access the subconscious. And that is actually what we want to get at, because that's what's really running the show. What we do on a conscious level in terms of our brain, our mind is only about 10 percent. Research says between eight to 10 percent. It's your subconscious and your unconscious that are really running the show. So that's kind of where you want to tap into. Because that's where, well, Bill Miller always calls it, he said, that's where the good stuff is. And it's so true. I'm just giving you a few moments here, just in case. I know. <laughs> How when many I times do, do people do that? When I do this with students, they go, I know what you're doing. <laughs> but you mustn't give too much, isn't it? Because I think we've been, I mean, sometimes, yeah, you've got to know your, your client. Because you know what it's like when you talk? It's interesting. It reminds me of certain people I talk to who, who these people get a reputation of. It's like you're always in a conversation with a counsellor because you will just over a cup of coffee say something. They'll kind of look at you and smile and not say anything. And yeah. it makes you feel really uneasy, doesn't it? But when someone's come to you in pain and they want help, that's when you do actually need to give them that time to open up and kind of say it some more. It's invaluable because you'll find out things with with pain, especially, I think. Obviously, it's a very conscious thing. You're, you're very aware of I'm in pain. But actually, maybe what's driving that and what's caused it is at a subconscious level. You know, we, we, you hear about 
placebo effect and that. Well, placebo effect is the subconscious and the unconscious taking control of the pain circuitry, basically. Mm-hmm. So finding that deeper level of information is invaluable in terms of how you move forward. Fantastic. Right. Um, said here before we go on, mm. ooh, I'm going to use my husband as a guinea pig. What is in his subconscious? You don't want to know, Vicky. I'll tell Never. you now, doing it with relatives and friends, it's a complete nightmare. Oh, not because when you're learning MI, because you have to kind of slow up the pace of conversation, you have to listen more, you reflect more as well. So you give people back information. When you do this with friends or people that know you well, they will turn around and go, what are you doing? Because they're not used to you being like that. So in terms of how would you practice MI, I always say to people, try and do it with a client because if you do it with friends or family, it can be a real headache. They'll continually be going, what are you doing? Why are you saying that? So it's not always a good idea. The good news is it will make your relationship better. My wife, when I'd learned MI and uh, I did intermediate and advanced court training as well and gone on to do loads of other but a few years ago, and I've been married 40 years this year, my wife said to me, she said, you've changed. And I'm like, what are you on about? She goes, you actually listen now. And <laughs> so there you go. So I kind of bought MI to my personal life without actually being aware that I was doing that. So Fantastic. Um, Brian Huxley says, pauses, going back to pauses, pauses are a great way to communicate effectively and allow class to access their true response. Not easy at first. Yeah, definitely. It's yeah. um and, and it's and, and normally it's the pause is it's you becoming comfortable with it, not the client. It's you're the one that normally feels uncomfortable because you think, Oh, I've got to say something. I should be I should have input here. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. I found the diagram uh, which you mentioned of those. I'm just thinking sometimes with, with clients, the actual if somebody comes in, they think that they just want a massage and that's going to get rid of all of their problems and they want that contact time. It might take a massage or two to engage with them before you start pushing the point that they need, for example, more than a massage and they need to address other factors in their life. So it will very much vary, won't it, these stages, depending on the person you see. Yeah, and that's something no you've got reason, to if, if you're just doing a massage for relaxation so you don't need any previous history and all that, then there's absolutely no reason why engaging can't be happening whilst you're doing the massage. Hmm. And it could be that you'll get to some type of, focus during that engagement and think oh hang on this is actually why they're here or why they want to do this i say to personal trainers you can do a lot of these steps when you're warming your client up you don't need to kind of go through all this and then think right we'll start the warm-up it's like put them on a treadmill put them on the ergo whatever it is you're going to use as a warm-up do your engagement then so rather than standing by the side of the treadmill talking about the weather aimlessly use that time purposefully and so yeah Definitely. And if you're doing symptom modification or something, so when you're actually getting them to move a certain way, we're slightly moving the trajectory of their arm and they realize they can raise their arm when they're not in pain. And that's a great way to get focusing and, and, and to engage. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, so many. You spot something they can do and you think, Oh, I've kind of got an idea about that. Now the way you give information is a whole different thing as well. You, Cause you're, we talked about this as well. Your writing reflex would naturally go, oh, I know what that is. What you should be doing is da, 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 da. We don't go there. But we, we kind of explore what they felt 
why they felt it, what they think it might be themselves, because they might have ideas. Now, it doesn't really matter whether those ideas are right or wrong, but you're listening to what they say and, and they might be on the right track, in which case you would kind of go, it's really great that you spot that and you realize that. Would you be interested in hearing what I think could be the mechanism here or whatever? What I've done there is I've respected their autonomy rather than jump in and go, right, what the mechanism is, is da, 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 da. I've, now they're always going to say yes. It'd be very strange if they turn around and go, no, don't tell me because that would tell you, well, you clearly haven't engaged them. They don't want, they want, they want that. Mm-hmm. Now you can give them that information, whatever it might be. Key thing then is check in with them. So don't just say to them, does that sound okay to you? Or how, what is that? Because they will just go, yes, because people don't want to appear stupid. But give them the information and ask a question around, how does that sound to you? What does that mean to you or whatever? Just so as they can demonstrate, they've got an understanding about what you're talking about. Because you may have put some technical language in there that they're like, what? You know, you're very used to muscle groups and extension and flexion and all all that type of language. And so sometimes we tend to use that language without realizing that Joe blogs off the street has not got the first clue what you're talking about. But they're unlikely to say to you, oh, what does that mean? Because they don't want to feel silly because they think, well, if he's using all that, I'm, I clearly should understand it. So what you're doing by checking their understanding is, again, you're getting them on board. If they go away fully understanding why they're engaged in this particular treatment, they are far more likely to follow through with anything else. And that comes to another aspect, which is intrinsic motivation. They're finding their own motivation for following through, doing whatever it is. And you do that by offering information in a specific way. Keep talking. <laughs> intrinsic motivation. <laughs> right, so intrinsic motivation. Well, um, best thing to do is bring the slide up on Com B because everybody can access this. Mm-hmm. I'll this, put it up in big mode, but we can still hear yeah. you. So the reference is there, Mitch Yetel. Um, it's the Behaviour Change Wheel. If you Google it, it's an open source re- um, journal. And so anyone can get their hands on it. But this is just one aspect of it. But this is looking at what actually is motivation. And so what we're looking at here is capability. So the individual psychological, physical capacity to engage in the activity. We sometimes take it for granted that people can go away and do this or they're able to do that or they've got the facilities for it or whatever. So educating, giving people knowledge, giving people skills is really obviously a key thing for a therapist in terms of, well, if you're going to give people exercises to go away and do, make sure that they fully understand how to do it. And not only how to do it, but why they should do it. When you're asking people to do something or other, always give them a rationale because people are far more likely to follow through with um, treatment, um lifestyle changes if there's a rationale behind it that they can buy into and so what we're doing is we're making sure that they've got the capability the other side of that is the opportunity so it's all the factors outside of the individual so that this could be you might be telling them to change their diet in some way well that might be expensive so could they afford to do that are there certain ingredients or foods or whatever they need to buy or equipment they need 
well, maybe that's outside their scope or they can't access it where they are. You know, they might they might have a local gym, but it might not have the piece of equipment you're suggesting they use or whatever. So we have to make sure they've got the opportunity as well. And if we do that, that then leads into motivation. And then with motivation in place, you can see that behavior will then change. But you'll also notice the arrows are two ways because as behavior changes, so do those other aspects because as we're making a behavior change, our capabilities most probably need to change as well to keep up with the behavior. And so it's not a one-off thing that we do and think, yay, job done, away you go. It, it's, a, it's an ongoing process. And this is where the engaging comes back in. It's we're making sure all these things are still in place and that they're moving forward. And this COMB model they actually use now in the English Institute for Sport to assess um, elite athletes coming into the program they make sure that they've got all these in place before they even start because you get young kids coming in 16 17 they maybe haven't got cooking skills they've never maybe never trained properly before or never had to train under a coach or whatever so they use this as a kind of a skeleton to go let's make sure they've got all this because then they'll be motivated to change and then their behaviors will change because clearly if you're moving into elite sport you, it's a new it's a new way of being it's a it's a new type of behavior completely so it, it's got very broad scope this okay and like you said if people listen to the podcast then you can find the diagram which um gary's talking about here um the author was mitch mitch mitchy mitchy's M -I -C -H -I -E. good 2011 and if you google search it it's um i've got the actual paper in front of me here if, if if you put my camera on there yeah, i can just put this up into the camera well, there we go right so there's the actual ooh, there you go paper the behavior change wheel a new method for characterizing and designing behavior change interventions and that's an op open source paper it's really worth reading there's a lot of resources around that wonderful and this applies that as you're talking I'm, i've got my kind of again a client coming in pain injury particularly if it's persistent pain where where even more so we know that there's going to have to be a lifestyle change if they come back with the same injury again and the same injury again it's kind of proof that the treatment which they had last time which kind of fixed it didn't really fix it because they've either relapsed again which is something i know we'll talk about in a second but mm -hmm. essentially they've just gone they haven't changed the lifestyle pattern the same as like you work a lot with people who have weight issues and the same as losing weight and they're great and then suddenly they're back again to see you again and they're overweight yeah. exactly the same with injury and pain isn't it if they're not making yeah. a lifestyle change that, wonderful Catherine's just mentioned a book there so it's worth mm -hmm. making note of that um what does she say there's also a book which gary recommended on motivation interviewing if anyone would like to read more on it motivational interviewing helping people change applications of motivational interviewing and Catherine's put a link here for amazon uh, where it's available nice one Catherine. um you're familiar with the book obviously gary that she's mentioning yeah there's another one that's good and is also quite cheap which is motivational interviewing in nutrition and fitness and all that, right that's a really good book as well it's fairly cheap and you can get it on audio book so okay. i'll make sure this all goes into the show notes for Benjamin here. Like out running or whatever or walking you can kind of listen to it listen to you so there you go benjamin here is on the case um he says if you google the combi author you get racing tires try again <laughs> <laughs> maybe yeah maybe put in something a bit more concrete 
try yeah. googling the behavior change wheel my odds, there you go. odds are you that'll pick it up yeah but thanks for letting us know benjamin i'm sure you're not the only person well i'm not sure but i imagine one or two other people have got the same results you magic okay so um I want to talk about relapse, but just before we do that, just to track back a little bit. So the stages of change you mentioned was the pre-contemplation um, where they're not even intending to take action in, I think it's six months, isn't it? Generally is the kind of... Pre-contemplation can last forever in a day. If, yeah. you, if you know anyone that's a smoker, generally they're pre-contemplators. You could right. talk about cancer and lungs and dark, tiry hearts and Christ knows what till you're blue in the face. They don't want to know. That's a classic pre-contemplator. Okay. And so the idea is they might come in like that and you can move them on to the contemplation stage, or they might come in at the contemplation stage, in which case they're intending or kind of starting to think about how they could get healthy. Yeah. My, my gut feeling is you're likely to get people that are contemplators stroke preparation. Yeah. Because that's kind of classically where people engage a trainer, a coach, a therapist, whatever. They've come through the door. So, yeah, the preparation stage you just mentioned, they're ready to take action soon. Yeah, that's kind of more geared short stage. That's kind of six to 12 weeks generally. That was that was added a lot later, actually, when they realized that people, they realized this shift is going on. And so they kind of said that when, when people move into that, there's a pretty good chance that within the next few weeks, they will take action on whatever it might be um and action yeah action being the stage four uh, that's yeah. when they've recently changed their behavior yeah they're doing something about doing something it. about it they've engaged you they bought equipment they've signed up to the gym whatever it might be they've been been to their gp something like that and then and the important stage yeah that can be up to six months it can be longer my personal preferences and this is not from an evidence-based standpoint, it's from personal experience, is it's different for everybody. I don't think you can put a number on it. You can't say, oh, well, you've been in action for weeks, you're now moving on. It, do it just doesn't work like that. I think the way we should look at the stages of change model is more of a linear model where people just progress through these. But in terms of could we put a date stamp on it? No, you can't because we're all different. Superb. The the stage five I like because it's called maintenance. I like that because it's always put a bee in my bonnet. Well, no, I used to do it myself, so I'm not being a hypocrite, but it, I worry these days when therapists are offering maintenance treatment with the idea that if you don't get this, us to stretch your legs or rub your back, you're going to get injured again. And, yeah. and, and I think as soon as you get into more kind of evidence-informed stuff, it's right to question that idea and the ethics yeah. behind it. But if your maintenance session of seeing this athlete is to stop them from going back into relapse and it's not just a massage and, and making them feel kind of vulnerable and that their body's not looking after them, if you're using the dialogue again to reinforce it, mm -hmm. then that's actually a really good reason and an ethical reason to get someone in, have a chat with them. It might be during massage again, isn't it? Because we all kind of relapse. It's kind of, I think you've heard you say before, it's almost human nature to relapse. Everybody relapse. It's how we learn. You cannot learn anything without relapse. You don't suddenly jump on a bike when you're a three-year-old and just ride it perfectly. You have stabilizers or your parents holding the seat, whatever it might be, and you wobble a bit and you might fall off a couple of times. The thing is you get back on and eventually you crack it. So that's the way to look at relapse. And I think sometimes people look at relapses as failures. They think, oh, well, I've relapsed. I've cocked it all up. Why bother? So they've been going to a therapist for a while, number of weeks, 
they have a particularly bad week and they think, oh, I'm getting bloody nowhere with this. I'm going to knock it on the head. That's a classic relapse. Now, some event has happened in that week that's pushed them to that point where they've gone, nah, had enough, don't want to play anymore. And so then they see it as failure. They start looking, oh, well, it's just me. I'm rubbish. I can't stick at anything, blah, blah. And they really beat themselves up. And we talk a bit this, about this on the Behaviour Change Workshop in terms of it's actually a documented effect. It's called the what the hell effect. And psychologists from um, Southern California, Barclay University, first documented it. And basically what happens is somebody has a relapse. They feel bad about it. They beat themselves up. They have their coke or they go back to doing exercise poorly or whatever it was that got them injured. And then they think, oh, sorry, I've screwed it. It doesn't matter. And then it just spirals. You go into a real negative spiral. And then it just becomes basically hard. It gets to the point where it's just impossible to get back on the horse. And so what you need to do with every client, and I always say this to trainers, is your very first session, you talk about relapse. And they're like, why would I do that? It sounds so negative. And I always say, well, when that person comes to you first time round, they are going to be full of hope. They will definitely be suffering from what we call bar underestimation, which is, they don't realize how difficult this whole process might be. They'll have very high expectations of, yeah, this is it. I'm fixing it this time, whatever. So it's actually a good time to talk about relapse. And why do we do it then? Because if we talk them through it in terms of learn from it, don't call it failure, call it feedback. And when you have a rubbish day where you're thinking of knocking it all on the head, sit down at the end of the day and just say to yourself, what could I have done differently today that would stop that situation occurring? And I said, as long as you can come up with one thing, that relapse has been brilliant. You have now got another tool in your armory and we crack on. We move on the next day. It also means that when you ring them up and go, why didn't you turn up for this session? They go, oh, well, it's all gone wrong. I'm not bothering anymore. You can then go. Remember, we talked about relapse in that very first, uh, and then the, you know something pings somewhere, and they go, "God, yeah, did you? You did mention that." Whereas if you haven't mentioned it, and now you try start to talk about positive feedback and blah blah, it will just sound like a sales pitch. It will just sound mm -hmm. like you're just trying to get them back in for further treatment. So it's really important to do it first session, so as they understand what it is. So it doesn't feel like a catastrophe. Excellent. Like uh, like Brian Huxley just said, took the words out of my mouth, Brian, pure gold. It is beautiful because it ties in so much with client retention, with keeping a business going, things you shouldn't feel guilty about because it's, I love that idea of don't call it failure, call it feedback. That's brilliant. Um, and, and it will touch points inside them, which make them realize that you as a therapist, you kind of understand them, you get it, you're human as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's brilliant. Really, really nice. Um, I'm, I do mainly online consultations now, and I know that some clients, and I blame it on myself, they might not come back to me because they, they've, they've fallen off the wagon or something. It's always runners, or they've done some stupid kind of session, or they've been off for a week and then tried to pick up the word before. And, put, yeah. and sometimes they just don't come back, and I'll drop them an email. And I'll say, look, I told you you were going to do this. You know, Don't worry. I knew you were going to do this because we're all human. I do it. Yeah, we do it all the time and it's yeah it's beautiful really good pure gold i agree brian um and it's gems like this i suppose which which make your courses 
um yeah just revelating for people who join them it's great for business it's the sort of cpd which counts it's really good for business actually because if you get that first the client might come along just thinking i'll just have one session because i want to see what it's all about if you're using mi with them and you engage focus and evoke they will go away hearing their own words about why they need to carry on doing it not because you're saying as the therapist well you need six treatments at least on this or whatever it might be whatever the rationale for further treatment is it doesn't matter how evidence-based it is they will not engage in that unless they've got their own reasons for doing it and what mi does is it gives them those reasons so it it almost is a sales tool you're trying to sell them on their own reasons so in terms of yeah it's great for engagement it's great for converting a prospective client into a paying client and it's very good for retention because all they see is their own reasons for staying in treatment it's not you saying they need to they understand themselves why they should and the and the possible benefits of doing that as well yeah it's great everything healthcare should be wonderful look it's um 854 so what i want to do if it's okay with you i mean i love your instagram account um i love the again i'm such a cynic sometimes i see these memes and things and people have these posters especially in the running community it's like oh my god here we go another running meme of uh, no one ever came back from run saying i didn't enjoy that and all this stuff so i'm kind of but the stuff you put up on your instagram feed is brilliant so i'm going to show i just took three of them which i really liked from the last couple of weeks and you just briefly tell us the uh the story behind them or what some of them are probably more obvious than others so yeah um if you're listening to the podcast you're not going to see these so i'll just briefly write or describe what's on what's on the screen at the moment let's put it onto full screen so here we got something from gary's <clears throat> instagram account which i recommend you follow it's at dr gary mendoza all one word and here we've got a nice big splash the typical education with all the words linked with education in the handwriting on it <clears throat> underneath it says education is more than just providing information stages of change limited so yeah what's the main message behind that I think it's it can't we've kind of already touched on this as as professionals we've got this writing reflex we've been given all this knowledge and we feel our job in life is to impart this knowledge onto anybody that we can trap long enough to listen to us and so what I was trying to get at there was is the way you give information is really important the way you check understanding of information is really important and the language that you use is very important. I think sometimes as professionals, we forget that we throw in words that we're really comfortable with. And yet maybe, I mean, the classic I'll give you is when I teach, I teach sport and exercise nutrition. I always say to people, don't just say to your clients, you need to eat more carbohydrates. You are making an assumption that your client understands what a carbohydrate is. And trust me, they don't. And in fact, I'd be quite willing to bet that there'll be a few people on this podcast that if I was to say to me, tell me what a carbohydrate is, I would get bread, rice, pasta. And actually, yes, they are carbohydrates, but way bigger. So that's what I'm getting at. Be careful with your language. Be careful when you give information, because if you try and give information at the wrong time, it doesn't work. The other thing is we all learn differently. So you may have some clients where it's best to describe an exercise or a movement or whatever. Another client, you are most probably better physically taking them through that movement, hands on, 
And yet somebody else who's quite maybe into physiology or whatever, it may be appropriate to describe the muscle actions that are going on. So understanding how your client learns and processes information is really, really important, actually, because you can throw all the information you like out there. But if your client's not processing it, you're just wasting your time and getting a sore throat for the hell of it. It's like, don't do it. Yeah, great message. Um, I heard another podcast um, I listened to. Um, I can't remember what it was, but you were talking about the fact I'm reading. I don't know if you've read it yet, but Daniel Lieberman's Exercised, um, great book available on Audible. But one of the big things he's talking about is for the majority of the population, exercise has and never will be fun. Uh, a lot of us working in the game, we, we're in it because we enjoy exercise. We normally come from a sport and, and we feel we can feel every single rep and we're kind of challenged. But for most of the population, for human beings as a species, the idea of, of special times dedicated to physical activity and their exercise is, is a totally abhorrent, ridiculous notion. It's really interesting because I always say this to personal trainers. I said, look, I've been a personal trainer 28 years, but I'm telling you now, exercise is a swear word. <laughs> and they're like what i'm like i can say to a client that i work with weight management ceo of a company i need you to exercise three to five times a week and they'll go can't do that way too busy i can say to that same client i need you to get active three to five times a week and they'll go oh yeah i can do that and it's just what you said it's that mm. perception that exercise is lycra hot and sweaty in a gym for at least an hour and so it's it's just it, it's another one of those language thing. Hmm. Don't talk about exercise. Talk about activity because it's a lot kinder word and it's actually a lot easier word for people to kind of get on board with. Right. We're going to have one more Instagram, if that's all right with you. Let's have a look. What one did I choose? Here we go. Let's put it on the big screen. Oh, uh, it's kind of linked. Yeah, there's a picture here with favorite. like a signpost, like an airport signpost looks like answers just ahead. And underneath, you don't have to come up with all the answers. You most probably don't have the best ones in any case. How can that be if you're the expert? Surely not. So what's that all about, Gary? Right. In MI, we talk about motivational interviewing consultation is a dance. You are helping your client move around the dance floor. You're giving them direction. You're kind of signposting where they should go. What often happens with professionals is they think it's wrestling. They're going to pin them down and they're going to jam information into the client. It ain't going to happen. The client needs to find their own answers. And very often they've got a good idea. It's a bit like um, weight management is a classic. I can go out onto the street and say to anybody, how do you lose weight? And I guarantee they'll, they'll say to me, well, I need to exercise more and I need to improve my diet, cut down my alcohol, stop the takeaways. Most people would, would be able to tell you that. Now, if the majority of our population know that, why are two thirds overweight? And the, the answer is they don't want to do anything about it. So until they find their own answers and reasons for doing it, they're not going to progress. And it's a bit like what we were talking about earlier, where the client has got a specific injury and they say, and you say to them, well, how do you think we should go about treating? And they'll look at you a bit daft. It's like, you're the expert. You tell me. But very often they'll go, oh, well, I've read this and a friend of mine did this. And that's great because it kind of gives you an opportunity to do two things. Affirm their knowledge. Great that you've even bothered to look that up. I love the fact that you've done a bit of research before coming here. I've got a few concerns about what you've said. 
would you be interested in hearing those? Now that they feel they're coming up with the answers with you. And so now it feels like, well, we're on the same journey. I'm just guiding you where you need to go. I'm not standing in front going this way to the front. And I'm not following along behind doing everything you say. I'm alongside and we're in it together. And once they feel that, once they feel it's a partnership, they'll keep coming back because they, they like most people like that feeling of it's a cooperative thing. And I don't feel put down or silly when I go along or whatever, because there is a danger as experts. And I'm sure Catherine will back me up on this. Your writing reflex is most probably the, the thing that you've got to get over the most. It's like, it's that you hear something and you go, oh, I know to fix that. This is what you should do. So don't, basically. You haven't got all the answers. You might think you have. Generally, you, you haven't. You might have a, a kernel of it, but actually the clients must probably got a pretty good idea as well, to be fair. Great advice. The right in reflex it's a beautiful one to take away with you right um okay so um we could easily i'd happily listen to you for another two hours um, and more but uh, unfortunately it's nine o'clock i'm sure you've got things to do so just to let people know um the website um which uh, gary is a uh, founder creator of let's just bring that up in the whole there we go so stages of change all one word stages of change.co.uk and there's a load of information and useful resources on there um, in particular for you soft tissue therapists who um, the discussion tonight has struck a chord thinking you know what yeah I need to improve my listening skills this sounds really interesting this is the man who I want to listen to and learn from then on this website um, if you go to the tab let's just bring it through the pictures here and come up with it Bum, 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 bum. unfortunately august is sold out which is always a nice thing to hear especially in these times yeah these um, workshops yeah. do feel quite quick because i only have nine people on each workshop because you need quite a lot of interaction that's fantastic yeah wow that's that's very good if there's only nine people um yeah but the next one is let's have a look uh 3rd of october there you go people so if you listen to the podcast go to the website and the behavior change and motivation interviewing techniques workshop starts the 3rd of October. And um, what does it run for, Gary? It's four Sundays, it, isn't it? It runs over four Sundays. Um, mm -hmm. Each module's um, the first module's three hours, subsequent three are roughly about two hours. Mm -hmm. And it's also AFN certified, so it's got external certification, so you can use it for CPD. Wonderful. Okay, and there's a lot more information on the site as well. Um, well worth going and have a look on there. And, and if you want to discuss it further, you can book a free 15-minute chat with me as well if you're thinking, mm, not sure whether this is quite right for me. Just book a chat. Oh, wonderful. There's a contact tab on there for them to contact yeah. you as well. You can literally book a time via the website. Amazing. And on social media, you are on Twitter, you're Dr. Gary Mind. Yeah. Um, and um, is it mainly Twitter you're active on? On Instagram as well, it's definitely well, worth following. Mainly Instagram, yeah, yeah, yeah. to be honest. Instagram's a good one. I think, uh, Ben, you've already signed up there. I'm not sure why Benjamin Mace Crossley has said chippy chips. You have any chips on your Instagram website? Car carbohydrates. Oh, that's what he's talking about. There you go. Oh, the one thing I would say is that's carbohydrates and fat. And <laughs> most probably 50-50. And it's saturated fat as well, most probably, if you're having them done properly in lard. So... <laughs> I'm not sure I'm going to be an advocate of that. Yeah, there you go, man. Um, right. Okay. So, Gary, thank you so much for joining us, mate. Um, as always, with all the guests we had, it, we could have talked about so much more. And I'll probably kind of 
try twisting your arm for a part two at some point uh maybe after some people have been on the course and then uh, we can yeah. have some testimonies as well about what they picked up and learned from it have you got anything else Great. interesting coming up now that restrictions are lifting a little bit got any plans for the rest of the year I think I'm going to be at the NEC at the therapist show. Mike's asked me about that. That'd be great. I'm at the Excel next June for the therapy and exercise live show or whatever there. And I'm in Loughborough in September as well, doing um, something there for movement therapists. Oh, wonderful. And this is all live stuff as well. Getting out and about for once. Yeah, I did the first (laughs) live workshop in over... Well, just well over a year now. I, I, my last live workshop was literally the weekend before lockdown in Manchester. Mm-hmm. And then last week I did the first live workshop I've done in, well, well over a year in Cardiff. Yeah. So, yeah. Felt good yeah, to see people again. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Um, people will be back next week at the same time, same place, eight o'clock um, uh, UK time. Uh, and next week, we're going to have Paul Coker returns. Paul Coker, former medical director of Rock Tape, um, and now um, physio and trainer and educator. He's going to be back this time talking about the relevance and importance of balance for runners and non-runners. I've tried to time down to runners, obviously, because I'm interested in runners, but also comparing maybe the two to see if there's much differences. But yeah, we're going to be talking all about um, the importance and relevance of balance, um, physical balance. In this case, it will be, I think, unless Paul's pulling a fast one he's going to start talking about mental balance as well but we'll see so do join us for that um and um if you're listening on the podcast and you're tempted to come along next time then yeah just join us you don't have to be an stm member uh, just either go along to the facebook group uh, facebook page sports therapy association or you can find us on the sports therapy association youtube channel right thanks gary have a great evening thanks for inviting me on and thanks everyone who joined us we'll see you next week take care You're listening to the Sports Therapy Association podcast. Let's talk about it.